Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Pete Irvin, a climate scientist. And I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. Each episode, we bring on a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. In this episode, we spoke with Luke Eisman, the founder of Make Sunsets, a recently launched for-profit company that sells cooling credits and aims to substantially lower global temperatures by releasing sulfates into the stratosphere. Today, we'll be talking about solar geoengineering, which is also called solar radiation modification, or SRM. And solar geoengineering is a set of techniques to artificially cool the planet in order to counteract climate change by reflecting a small portion of incoming sunlight. The leading proposed method to do so would mimic how volcanoes naturally cool the planet. Volcanoes release a large amount of small particles that stay in the atmosphere, especially those that are at high altitude, for months upwards of a year and cool the planet by a degree or so. And it appears that humans could inject aerosols, tiny particles, into the stratosphere, the upper atmosphere, and block some incoming sunlight. And the leading proposed substance to do so is what volcanoes inject, which is sulfur dioxide. Now, this has been a contentious topic. The issues of governance and the politics thereof are quite sensitive. In our conversation with Luke, we discuss the technology, which is weather balloons at the moment, and the aims of his effort, which is to lower global temperatures, and get into some of the technicalities and some of our concerns about the numbers and claims that his company makes. There are sky-high ambitions here, but I think there's a a lot of doubt. I, I, I was very skeptical going into this conversation, and I'm perhaps even more skeptical of this endeavor coming out of it. But you can be the judge of the, the claims and um, science behind this idea. This has been one of the more interesting conversations that we've had on challenging climate. Your phrase regarding going in skeptical and coming out more skeptical was precisely what I planned to say. Make Sunsets, uh, Luke's new startup company, uh, has been getting significant attention among some specialist media for his claim that he is selling cooling by launching balloons that contain a small amount of sulfur dioxide balloons, which may or may not reach the stratosphere. You can get a sense of the approach of our guest, Luke Eisman, in a blog post that he wrote back in April called Geoengineering Now. He writes, unless we modify the stratosphere, Earth will be uninhabitable for most people and many species by 2050. We need to start geoengineering now, and we need to be even more cavalier than we've been with modifying the atmosphere. Presumably, with modifying the atmosphere, he's referring to the release of greenhouse gases. Looks, looks clearly very passionate, and he's got, coming from the startup world, he's got world-changing ambitions. And... I think his heart, in, in, in some sense, is in the right place. He strongly believes that climate change is a getting on towards existential crisis. And he believes that solar geoengineering is the only way to limit warming to one and a half to two Celsius, a belief that I'm, I don't fully hold, but it's, I, my, my views are fairly close to that. But I guess my view is it's not the number of grams of sulfur in the stratosphere that's a key determinant for whether we'll get solar geoengineering done. It's, it's to what extent there's a, the trust and confidence that it's a good idea. So yeah, I'm concerned that Luke and this company, Make Sunsets, are going to get some grams of sulfur in the stratosphere, but are going to subtract from the trust and confidence that people should have in, in solar engineering. It might be one step forward and two steps back. You can be the judge of that. Have a listen to our conversation and, and see what you think. So we bring you Luke Eisman. Our guest today on Challenging Climate is Luke Eisman of Make Sunsets. Luke, welcome to Challenging Climate. Thanks for having me. 
Let's start with your background. How did you end up where you're at now selling cooling credits? More like trying to sell cooling credits. It's very early. We've sold all of several hundred dollars worth of them so far. I've started a couple different companies, mainly in the hardware space, and for a while worked at Y Combinator as director of hardware there and helped grow their support for hardware companies from, you know, a company every batch or two in the hardware space to we peaked at like 20 percent plus of the companies in batch were doing hardware and it wasn't little trinkets it was ambitious projects like supersonic aircraft and 3d printed rocket engines so i definitely learned more from the entrepreneurs i worked with there than vice versa and basically after a couple different startups was trying to figure out what to do next. And the closer I looked at clean tech broadly, frankly, the more depressed I got. There's tons of things that, in my estimation, look great on a 50 to 250 year time scale. But in terms of things really addressing the urgency of our situation, the only thing that I've found is solar radiation management. And uh, appropriately, the way that I found that was by reading the the most recent book by your kickoff guest for this podcast. I read Neil Stevenson's Termination Shock, and there's probably a 20-syllable German word for that feeling when you are listening to or reading something and know that it's going to be a rabbit hole that you have to dive down. So whatever that word is, that's what I experienced as I as I read Termination Shock. And for the uh, listeners who are unfamiliar, Y Combinator is a Bay Area incubator, I believe. Yeah, incubator, accelerator. Basically, they're they're often the first funding into a variety of different startups. And yeah, it was I learned a lot there. So your current project, the one that brings you onto challenging climate, is Make Sunsets. What's the objective of this project? Uh, I want to create in the next twenty or so years of my life. I want to create as much cooling as I safely can. And I want to do it as quickly as possible. I think that there are a million different ways we might do that. I, for what it's worth, agree with at least how I understand Professor David Keith and others' evaluation of much better ways to do this. It would be great if we had international consensus. It would be great if international law had more teeth and the UN could do this for all of us. However, in reality, you know, we have a land war in Europe and I would posit that every day we don't at least do research deployments for things like stratospheric aerosol injection. That directly translates to people needlessly dying and species going extinct. So we'll get into the some of the governance regulation and politics here in a bit. Let's start by focusing in on the on the nitty-gritty, if you will. How does make sunsets work? both technically, let's maybe we can start technically and then move over to the uh, finances of it. What are you doing physically? Sure. So I read, I think one of your papers compared a bunch of different deployment technologies, talked to a bunch of people working in this field, including some physicists who stressed to me that mirrors at the Lagrange point or LCDs that we could turn on and off at the Lagrange point in space would be technically the optimal way to do this. You all are the experts here. So I, uh, kind of took a different approach. I read through all these different approaches and then looked at what I might actually be able to click buy now on. And the only one that fell even vaguely into that category was uh, ordering some large latex balloons on Amazon and buying some agricultural amendment ground sulfur also on Amazon. Literally everything I used for the first prototype was from Amazon and cost well under $500. There was little to no scientific merit to it. There was no telemetry. So technically, I can't prove that it deployed in the stratosphere. However, back well before I started this as a company, when this was in science project slash can I do this territory, I deployed two balloons full of helium, a bit of sulfur dioxide gas, and a zip tied shut, deployed them by literally letting them go. And guesstimate, they burst around 30 kilometers. Basically, I wanted to, with startup stuff, we call it an MVP, minimum viable product. I wanted to err on the side of doing too little and spending too little, especially when it was just me funding this and I wasn't 
sure there would be a business to be built. My next flights, which I hope to have three flights in this month, in January 2023, they'll include telemetry. If, and this is a big if, we're able to recover the balloons, they'll also include video and other details from the flight computer. At the very least, they'll include telemetry that we can do remotely to see that they get up to at least 18 kilometers. It's by design as simple technically as I can think to make it. I only want to introduce complexity in response to in response to future customer demand. So the balloon contains helium and some sulfur dioxide gas, correct? That's correct. And about how much sulfur dioxide does each balloon contain? Uh, well under 10 grams of sulfur dioxide each. It was more difficult to generate a meaningful quantity of gas by just lighting sulfur on fire than than I anticipated. And then on the financial side, how do you see the the business model? How do you see dollars translating to sulfur dioxide in the stratosphere? Right now, we're selling pooling credits for $10 per credit. That translates to a commitment by us to deploy at least one gram of sulfur dioxide to an altitude of 20 kilometers. In reality, there's a lot of uncertainty around basically everything with atmospheric science. We intend to deploy materially more than that per colon credit purchased. And I think that we've we've properly caveated on our website that, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty here. This is roughly based on our understanding of consensus in the science, what we think the impact of this is. How big is this endeavor? How many employees are is there are there any employees besides yourself? What's your budget? How much money have you raised? We've raised about seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. It's myself and a uh, co-founder named Andrew, and that's it. He's focused on sales, and I'm focused on everything else. <laughs> right. So I'd like to dig a little bit more into the, the cooling credits and um, you know the what you're selling. On your website, it says, by purchasing a cooling credit, your funds will be used to release at least one gram of our clouds, um, sulfur dioxide, into the stratosphere on your behalf, offsetting the warming effect of one ton of carbon dioxide for one year. Yeah, can you explain that that offset of one ton of CO2 for one year? Because normal carbon credits are offsetting one ton of carbon dioxide forever. So can you explain the the difference there? Please correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong. I don't believe that all normal carbon credits in the voluntary market are offsetting one ton forever. If I understand correctly, all of the forestation ones typically represent either a 30 or 50 year time scale. If they represent anything at all, I, I think that most credits available for less than $30 per ton are of very questionable quality. We don't know exactly what we should call these. The closest analog we can come up with is carbon credits. And when I say one ton for one year, what I'm speaking to is the radiative forcing created by the release of one ton of carbon dioxide. And again, Huge uncertainty bands, as as you all and most of your listeners probably know, by my reading of the UN IPCC consensus, there's a 3x difference in how much warming is created per unit carbon dioxide release. So all of this is working off of the best estimates that we can find. And if we are wrong, we'll correct mistakes as we go. Yeah, I, I guess my understanding of, of carbon credits is that they are actually, well, the ones that, that work, let's say, are actually offsetting a ton of carbon, either preventing it from being released, or, I mean, in the case of the direct air capture services, they're actually putting a ton of CO2 under the ground forever. Because I, I think it's worth, I mean, it's worth stressing that the carbon dioxide doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> I mean, well, it goes it goes broadly into the, the oceans and the land surface and you know, the ton that we emit today, I believe it's something like 20% of that is still around thousands of years into the future. Yeah, I guess I'm just wondering, the, if you're only offsetting one ton of CO2 for, for one year, is it really appropriate to compare this to a carbon credit? That's a good question. And to be clear, I think that direct air carbon capture and other things with strong MRV are very important. They are actually Assuming a lot of technical development and dramatic reductions in cost and very dramatic scale up, they are the solution. We are not the solution. We are the thing to buy us time. Sorry, can you explain that MRV for us? What's the t- what's the terminology? I missed that. Uh, monitoring, reporting, and verification. 
people talk about that with with carbon credits quite a bit. The closest I can find for a way in which we might actually achieve the scale that we need to prevent dramatic harms in a world that is more than two degrees Celsius warmer than it was before the Industrial Revolution. The only way I can think of getting that capital, from what I understand, is to convince people that this is enough like a voluntary carbon credit that companies can use this to achieve their otherwise, frankly, unachievable net zero commitments. Just to drill in on that, I mean, so so if I'm a company that wants to offset my carbon footprint, so let's say I emitted a thousand tons of CO2 this year and a thousand tons every year, if I buy a thousand of your credits, I'm only offsetting this year's CO2 for this year. And then it will go on to have its effect on the atmosphere for, for thousands of years, a diminishing effect, but an effect for thousands of years. Will I need to buy your credits every single year to offset the CO2 of this year? CO2 equivalency is a is a strange thing to be to be blunt. You can get via the main carbon verification services, you can get a CO2 equivalent number of credits for installing an incremental electric vehicle charging station, for example. Some of these projects have a lot of merit, some have less. What I hope to see, the most exciting concept I've heard here is bundling, where instead of buying snake oil at $20 per ton for reforestation credits, not all of which are snake oil, but a lot of which are, instead, what I'd love to see companies do is do a bundle of direct air capture, which is dramatically more expensive, hundreds of dollars, if not thousands per ton, bundled with us to achieve an average blended cost that is comparable to the questionable quality, lower cost credits out there. In terms of like, if someone has an incremental thousand dollars, and if we were talking about the same cost for us versus direct air capture, people should do direct air capture. I mean, I guess the, the solution in the, in the climate community for, for gases and other things that don't have the same lifetime of CO2 is what's called the global warming potential 100, say, which is the 100-year equivalence of CO2. So methane is more effective greenhouse gas, but it lasts less long. You integrate that over 100 years, ta-da, it's got a ratio of 400. But that's not what you're doing. You're not calculating a global warming potential equivalent. You're just doing a single year's relative forcing. So you're one year of CO2 forcing equivalent. Basically, we're working off of our reading of the literature. I got the gram offsets a ton from some of Professor David Keith's speeches. And then I worked backwards from papers by Wake Smith and others to justify that for myself enough to to understand it. I, I don't think it's the gold standard. We're certainly open to anything else. And we look forward to, based on people that want these credits, figuring out what the equivalency is. I think something worth noting here is that existing systems are not working. And there's a million reasons why ours is not ideal, but greenhouse gas equivalent emissions go up every year and they need to be dramatically cut or basically we don't have a livable world anymore. Uh, yeah, on that point, you have a claim on your website. Uh, well, I guess it's an ambition. We can create sufficient cooling to offset this year's new warming or this year's new CO2 emissions, presumably, for $30 million per year. I That doesn't match my calculations. We, we emit 40 billion tons of CO2 equivalent uh, per year. And you're selling one cooling credit, which is one ton for one year, at $10. At that current exchange rate, you would need $400 billion to offset this year's CO2 for only this year. Uh, am I right? Oh, I Frankly, I have never done the math on our retail price of individual credits. Uh, I can tell you that our cost of deployment at large scale is dominated by the cost of sulfur, which is $200 per ton. Um, so the $30 million is, I think, a 3x multiple on the actual cost of the sulfur necessary to create radiative forcing to offset 1,000 gigatons equaling 0.43 C of global warming, which is the consensus IPCC estimate. Okay, so, so your number is uh, some idea. It's not if you were given $30 million today, you'd be able to achieve this. It's in some ideal case where you've got some new technology. 
Oh no, to be clear, if we are given $30 million today, I believe that we would offset more than the amount of warming created by CO2 emissions this year. Which is 40 billion tons. Yes. You say you're open to better alternatives. Are you going to seek to have independently verified claims? Because these cooling credits are new, and I think people are legitimately doubtful about some of the claims you're making. So are you going to work towards having independently validated claims, independent verification of that you're actually doing what you say you're doing? What steps are you taking to increase trust in those kind of ways? No, I people are and should be skeptical. Uh, I think we are open to any ways of verifying our claims. It's actually, listeners might not know this, but it's surprisingly hard to get a carbon equivalence established. We've looked into all three of the major registries. We hope to slowly make progress, but it's there's one that is fast and less expensive. They're all they're all very time constrained. Many people are trying to get many different things established for carbon equivalencies. For the two major ones, I don't think there's any route to getting a new methodology established that costs less than $150,000 and takes less than two years. I guess there are these official routes, but I mean, at the minute, we have your word that you've somehow got sulfur inside of a balloon and that it's reached the stratosphere and that it has such and such cooling effects that are equivalent to a ton of CO2. I'm a little skeptical that on each of those steps. And I guess I'm curious how you're planning to address the concerns that your potential customers would have. Yeah, no, I think that, again, skepticism is entirely warranted. Uh, and step one this month is to do flights with telemetry to make it not a matter of trust about whether our balloons get up. Uh, again, we're open to suggestions. A lot of this is kind of new territory. Like when you think about MRV in this case, if you can show direct evidence with video of your, your sulfur dioxide being deployed, and then at larger scale, hopefully, and I, this we have not figured this out yet, but my hope is that at large enough scale, we'll be able to detect, as we do with volcanoes, the release and at least at least document the release and that it is moving in a way similar to how other sulfur dioxide emissions have moved via satellite at a large enough scale. So I think hopefully that will prevent us from having to fly, you know, 50 to 100 kilograms of optical analysis equipment on each flight. Yeah, so I, I'm pretty confident that, you know, with some telemetry, I will be, you know, your customers will have confidence that the balloon that you launched uh, reached the stratosphere and, and some video to go with it. What I'm a bit more skeptical of, and I'm not quite sure how you're going to be able to test it, is did the sulfur that you claim to have got in the balloon get in the balloon? And did that get to the stratosphere? Do you have any ideas or approaches for measuring whether it's in the balloon, whether it gets to the stratosphere? Yeah, I think that at scale, this becomes easier when we can do large enough deployments that we're using. You know, weather balloons and balloons are not the solution necessarily at scale. So the question is a lot different if we're releasing a ton of sulfur dioxide than if we're releasing a gram, right? At a large enough emission, I believe using existing cube satellites, you can detect the release of these particles and confirm the altitude and type. Like there are, there are and correct me if I'm wrong, there are satellites that can detect sulfur dioxide emissions and confirm, at least within a couple of kilometers, the altitude at which they're occurring. There are satellites that can detect the millions of tons or hundreds of thousands of tons that volcanic eruptions emit. I'm pre I don't know if our satellites will be good enough to detect the release from a single balloon that contains 10 or 100 kilograms. I think that's probably beyond our capabilities. And I guess in a sense, at the current rate, $10 buys you one gram. And so one ton is $10 million at your current exchange rate. Are we just going to have to cross our fingers and hope that you're getting sulfur to the stratosphere while you raise these tens of millions of dollars? Uh, I, I think you're assuming way too much credibility for us. We've we've raised uh, tens of dollars so far, up to, I think, $200 in sales. 
imagine I'm a customer. Why should I give you a thousand dollars if I don't if I can't be sure that you're actually getting sulfur to the stratosphere? Uh, I mean, I think that if you look at the verification that occurs for most voluntary carbon credit programs that cost less than fifty dollars a ton, sadly, we're within the realm of MRV that they are doing. I 100% agree that is unacceptable. What I hope will happen over the next several months is that people reach out about orders. I think our largest order so far, we, our two first investors have subscribed to a massive 20 grams uh, per month. Other than them, our largest order is $100. And honestly, like the other side of this is I'm amazed and humbled that 20 or so people have been willing to give us $10 or more, that they have that trust in us. I agree that it's unreasonable to have that trust or much more. I think that speaks to how desperate people are for meaningful solutions here. Maybe the point we haven't actually discussed so far, but you've already received somewhere in the ballpark of three quarters of a million dollars in funding. Is that correct? In investment, yes. Not in, not in purchases of credits. We've received several hundred dollars in purchases of credits. And frankly, if someone did attempt to order, I think $1,000 would probably be our cutoff. If someone attempted to order more than $1,000, I would not feel comfortable uh, charging them for that order until I had a discussion with them individually about the MRV in addition to what we're already doing that they are expecting. So you've had the $750,000 US dollars in investment. What, what are you spending that investment on? Is it, is it capital? Is it research? Yeah. So this is something that is a, a big difference of opinion between me and, and many others. I am, to my chagrin, having to take the advice that I used to give to startups. And to be clear, this company is not affiliated with Y Combinator. But at, at YC, we have a simple motto which is make something people want. And the best explanation of that that I've heard is one of the partners there broke that down into two simple parts. You have to, one, actually make something, and two, show that people actually want it. So in spite of the approach that others might take, which is to burn through this $750,000 doing any of the deep tech development that is important and fun to me and could further the field. Instead of doing that, we're going to spend money very slowly and we're only going to spend money to figure out what customers actually want and then to build it. So the order of operations here is important. Is important, And I understand that that feels weird to have a $10 cooling credit of frankly unclear quality offered. But having that as the first step in being market driven rather than, you know, if the, if the answer to this was to have a prestigious, brilliant professor raise $20 million and then have a public discussion to solve the problem, we, I wouldn't need to start this company. That approach does not appear to have worked yet. So kind of I'm scratching my head and trying to think of, again, you know, at a, at a very extremely different approach, how I might impact this field. On a on a different topic, have you applied for any patents? Do you plan on applying for patents? We have not applied for any. My last company, when I shut it down, I open sourced the design. It was a an off grid small home company, and I open sourced the designs when I when I shut down the company. We don't. Yeah, we have not applied for any patents. I do not know if we ever will. What I'm most excited about on the IP front is peripheral technologies that eventually will build out. I think that uh, photovoltaics coupled with some interesting twists on how to generate hydrogen from seawater uh, will be an interesting topic that there's been a lot of interesting academic research on. It's certainly not a priority for us, but I, I don't want to say we'll never file for patents because, because I could see something like our demand for hydrogen as lift gas and our somewhat unique but growing use case of dispersed small-scale generation being something that we might file patents on eventually if we ever pursue it. So you, you talk quite a bit about technology development there, but without plans for IP, because you say your existing approach, which is to buy weather balloons from Amazon, is not a sustainable long-term plan. But what are the steps beyond that? What's the next step technologically? 
And are you going to be the ones to develop it, or are you going to outsource it and buy them by whatever it is by whatever kit it is from someone else? That's a very good question. Uh, the The focus really is to resist my urge to do more technical development and to be open to pursuing it in the direction that customers demand. What I want to do is make my balloons reusable in a way that can scale up to larger balloons. If we can get 10 uses per balloon, for example, I think that dramatically changes the economics of use of balloons versus other technology. Uh, I want to make them semi-autonomous that I can deploy them via existing or slightly improved uh, drone boats and then have them come down and refill themselves. I think that also changes the, the economics at scale. And I want to switch to bigger balloons, but I'm keeping myself from doing any of this because frankly, I think what is more likely than that we scale up balloons is that at some point a nation state approaches you or us, more likely you, and says, we're ready to do meaningful deployments. How can we best do it this year? And that's almost definitely existing military plans. The first step there are reusable stratospheric balloons. Does anyone reuse stratospheric balloons today? One of the first things I did as I became obsessed with balloons was talk to anyone that I could find who had worked on Google's Project Loon, which uh, went out of business. The former employee's take on it was that it was profitable, but not profitable enough for Google's standards. And they broke all the stratospheric ballooning records, as far as I can tell. They kept balloons in the stratosphere for hundreds of days at a time, did launches all over the world and we're flying coordinated clusters of them to maintain high-speed connectivity. Basically, my estimation of what I'm doing is simpler than what they did in pretty much every way. I don't believe they ever successfully relaunched. And this is kind of a weird point, and this is definitely not something that we have done yet. But my hope, and this at least vaguely has passed sanity check with some other with some balloonists, my hope is to launch once, land, never, by which I mean have a tethered ballast that is buoyant in seawater at the base of the balloon, extending some length, call it 50 meters down below, that will serve as a refill point. And when I release gas at altitude, release some but not all of it, such that the balloon remains buoyant in air, but the ballast exceeds the buoyancy amount and will float on water. It's, that is admittedly nowhere near what we have built yet. I'm going to jump over to a different topic, and that's one of geography. Why did you go to Mexico to launch your balloons that have been launched and implicitly the balloons you plan on launching? I am shifting to being based here. I purchased land in Baja over a year before even thinking about geoengineering. Additionally, my understanding of the science is that for optimum particle residency time, you want to launch in or near the tropics. And to one of my early points, I'm focused on creating, even at this test scale, as much cooling as quickly as I responsibly can. Have you looked into any applicable regulation of your activities? Yeah, from my reading of it, there is basically unmanned free floating balloons, free floating balloons, UFBs, are the, if any, listeners have ever sailed, they're the swimmers of the sky, by which I mean that they are the highest class because they're the least capable of getting out of the way of other things. If I understand correctly, and if the, the balloonist that I've talked to understand correctly, you basically issue a notum, a notice to airmen about your launch and get, you know, you stay away from major population centers, etc. There's there's basically there's hobbyist guides to the steps required. And we meet or exceed those. In terms of the emission of sulfur dioxide, as others have commented, this is produced in dramatically greater quantity than what I'm producing via uh, airplanes. And they're doing it at a lower altitude, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but all else equal sulfur dioxide released at 20 kilometers altitude versus 5 kilometers altitude. Same quantity at 5 kilometers is far more likely to produce acid rain and other harms to human health. On the topic of regulation, do you believe that if your activities were having a significant impact on the climate, that national regulators would allow you to continue? My uh, honest answer, I don't know. 
what I hope is that many people are starting to realize that our world is essentially on fire and we don't have the time to try and achieve an international consensus in our current world before starting deployment of these things. There, there are a substantial number of island nations whose very existence is threatened by rising sea levels. And I don't need permission from everyone in the world to do this. I, I hope, and it's a long shot, but I hope that before we, before we run out of money or in some future incarnation of this, one or more island states decide that in fact their situation is so desperate that they will allow us to launch from their space with their blessing. And ideally, like my dream is that the Coca-Colas of the world pay for this technology via their net zero commitments. And I'm able to create an economic engine for threatened island nations by serving as paid launch sites. I mean, the question that I had next in mind, and then I'll partially answer it and then hand it off to you. I wanted to ask how you think the politics and the governance of this issue is going to develop in the medium term more generally. If I understand your previous statement correctly, you don't really envision make sunsets using balloon technology having a significant measurable impact on the global climate, but you do envision this as something that will lead to different technologies and different actors doing or at least approving the stratospheric aerosol injection activities. Is that a correct reading or? Pretty close. I expect to do this via make sunsets. Like the, the deal with startups is high consequence, low probability. As with all startups, there's almost no chance that our startup will be alive in two years. However, if we are, if we succeed, giant ifs, super low probability that we actually do, I expect to build a very large and very valuable company around this. Philosophically, would I rather that you know some international consensus solve this problem? Absolutely. I think that is a better world. I think the power of capitalism is far too great, philosophically. Practically, this is the startups are the thing I know a little bit about. This is my way of at least maybe moving the conversation and really what pushed me over the top to do this was seeing how little progress brilliant, well-funded labs are making at doing even testing here. So could you lay out your vision then on, on the way there? Today, you're doing some, some very, very small-scale stuff with existing weather balloons, some form of technology development or something. like How do you go from where we are today both in a technological sense, but in a in a business sense. How do you envision this company, this project developing over the next 10, 20 years? That's a very good question. What I hope to achieve this year is to get one or more of the visionary companies that have funded ambitious carbon dioxide removal, ocean plastic removal, and other ambitious forefront projects. I hope to get one or more of them to make a meaningful forward purchase agreement with us for calling credits. I expect that to have 20 pages of caveats about the MRV that they need us to build before they will make that investment or before they will, will release all of it. Uh, my limited understanding of these forward purchase agreements is that they often have, because they're funding CDR, they're often at rather large costs per ton. And because CDR involves a lot of of build out for most of the, the procedures that I've seen, they'll often have tranches released as people build out their lab, let alone as they achieve actual carbon dioxide removal. So the goal for this year is to get a meaningful forward purchase agreement from a company and then to start executing on what I expect, again, to be and should be a giant stack of MRV. And I hope to, in my, in my, confrontational way, build a relationship with academics who can help us figure out what that MRV should be above and beyond just what customers demand. One of the giant issues why I wrote off, initially I wrote off the voluntary carbon credit market as just snake oil. It has voluntary in the name and we are in some type of economic crisis. So it seems like a program that would get cut. But uh, I think a lot of the supply side, not all, but a lot of the lower cost supply side is snake oil. 
on the supply side. However, the demand is very real and growing. Giant companies are making net zero commitments that uh, they need technology like ours to meet. I guess you're envisioning the reflectivity market or this cooling offset market as being, is it an alternative to a carbon offset or is it a complementary thing? Would you, I mean, do you want customers to offset some of their CO2 in the conventional way and some of it in this way or to do both, you know, offset all of their carbon dioxide by removing it and then also offset the relative forcing? My hope is that we protect forests because they're forests and of intrinsic value. I hate the idea that based on some weird derivative of carbon voluntary market prices, we gain or lose millions of acres of forest worldwide. That seems crazy to me. Uh, I want people to only buy carbon dioxide removal and other very strong, very expensive, very direct decarbonization measures coupled with things like ours. And you raise a great point about a reflectivity market. I don't know how this will develop. I agree that it feels more reasonable to have something like a reflectivity market that doesn't exist yet. And to the degree that we can help establish that without, you know, betting our company on needing to do so, I think that could be great. I mean, any Albedo enhancement thing, in my opinion, it would be nice if they had some ability to monetize their Albedo enhancement. One example that I heard recently was a cement company had reached out to a friend's consultancy about trying to establish some way for them to monetize making cement more reflective rather than less. These are small changes, but at the scale of like, if a the biggest cement company here is called Semex, if a Semex can make $1 more per ton of cement, that's that's quite large given the tonnage involved. If things go as you hope they go, one concern I have is if this is seen as an alternative to or a competitor with carbon offsets or or real carbon sequestration, it's going to be orders of magnitude cheaper. At the moment, you're only somewhat cheaper than existing carbon credits uh, or claim to be uh, $10 for one ton of CO2 for one year. But even doing the global warming potential for 100 years, a fully developed deployment technology like high altitude aircraft, it looks like the cost will be rather than the $10 million per ton of sulfur that you estimate currently, their estimates are $1,000 per ton. And, you know, making that conversion ratio, that means it's pennies or, or, you know, cents per ton of CO2 offset. So one worry with this is that it would completely, well, if people took it seriously, it would completely tank the carbon offset market and, and, and dominate it. Is that a problem? I want to I want to be impolite for a minute here and push back on that argument very vehemently. We live in a world where people are dying and species are going extinct because of global warming. And a complaint that people are raising about a technology is that at scale it will be too cheap and after we solve this problem or buy time to solve this problem after we solve the yearly problem of preventable heat deaths and species extinctions occurring. It might then be too cheap. So maybe philosophically, some people might not do something. I bristle. The more I hear that argument, the more I bristle at it. And I think it is very likely that future generations will ask us what we were thinking by making that argument. How dare we not deploy a technology that could have saved, that could have maintained their world in a more livable state while other technologies matured to solve the underlying problem. We are not making any progress or we're making very little progress. There is basically zero chance. Correct me if I'm wrong, but no, no uh, scientist I've spoken to has provided any scenario to me by which we stay below two degrees Celsius plus of global warming by 2100 other than measures that include solar radiation management. Sorry, my point was, if if it's treated as an alternative to carbon offsets, then it's going to price out the market because it's going to be orders of magnitude cheaper. And I I worry that that things that actually result in less carbon dioxide being added to the atmosphere would be priced out if this was taken as as an equivalent. Yeah, I mean, to, to simplify a bit, the carbon dioxide removal market the voluntary carbon credit markets are a rounding error compared to emissions. They're not working. I have no idea if this will, but to place a theoretical concern about 
basically the the underlying difference is whether you think our current system has us on track to maintain a livable world or not. And I do not think it even remotely does. I think that the data demonstrates we have no chance other than drastic change like solar radiation management of staying below 2C. I'm curious whether you're familiar with the businesses that were called Climos and Planktos. Do those ring a bell? Planktos does Climos. I don't believe I've heard of. Those those businesses that I mentioned, Climos and Planktos, were two startups that in around 2007 said that they were going to sell carbon credits for ocean iron fertilization, which at the time people thought, oh, wow, it's this super high leveraged way that just a few grams or kilograms of iron put into the right place in, in the ocean can cause huge amounts of carbon dioxide to be pulled out from the air. And the fact that they were going to sell carbon credits, and it was very difficult to verify and highly suspect what the magnitude of of any withdrawals were, and the environmental effects were unknown, a line can be drawn from their activities to the conference of parties of the Convention on Biological Diversity in 2010, adopting a very poorly worded but clearly cautious statement, a decision, the only international decision on geoengineering broadly defined, that has been interpreted by some wrongly, I would say, as a moratorium on geoengineering activities. And here we are 15 years later, and we still hear about these companies, and we're still in this, we still live in a world where this decision stands and has an effect. And SRM might be the topic of deliberations at the United Nations General Assembly later this year. One could imagine a line going from your activities to playing a role at the United Nations General Assembly. Your operation fits the critics' vision of the private benefit to a T, right? Silicon Valley startup, well-funded, profit-driven, questionable numbers, not transparent activities. You're selling your, your cooling credits out on the market in a way that, as Pete talked about, could compete with mitigation and push out even the legitimate offsets and even the legitimate emissions cut. You did your activities in a developing country, despite being from the United States, which plays into this vision of SRM as some sort of inevitably colonialist activity. I took a look at the Oxford Principles, which are the leading and were the earliest set of principles to guide geoengineering activity. And I assessed the work of Make Sunsets against those five Oxford principles. And you acted clearly consistent with none of them and contrary to at least two or three of them. It's unsurprising that both the supporters and the critics of SRM research have have been critical of your activity. And I'm aware of no one in the SRM community, however you define it, who's been supportive. And so this leads me to my question. Do you think that Make Sunsets will play out in this political environment, in this sensitive political environment, in a way that's different from Planktos and Klimos, in a way that actually causes the political center of gravity to shift not towards support for careful SRM research, but towards restrictive regulation and increased fear that it will inevitably be out of control. Do I think this will play out differently than Planck does? Yes. And I would not be doing this if I thought it would just be a recurrence of Russ George's experiments. As, as you acknowledged, the science was quite unsound fundamentally behind Plankos. While there are questions about how we should deploy for optimum effect, I think you would both agree that the science is sound that putting sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere creates radiative forcing in the opposite direction of putting CO2 in the atmosphere. I would also include that we're not in the same world we were with Plankos. Missing from this conversation, as people caution me about how I'm about to create a magical UN ban, is that Australia is doing a far more questionable thing at scale over the Great Barrier Reefs. Marine cloud brightening, I read about, and initially I was like, oh, cool, maybe I can just put some salt water in the air. And again, as a non-scientist, for me, 
That is far more questionable whether it creates net warming or cooling. Yet Australia is doing this at a quite substantial scale. I haven't heard any substantial protests against it or calls for a boycott of tourism to the Great Barrier Reef. We're in a different world. We're not in the world we were with Russ George, and this is not oceanine fertilization. So the world is different. The science is sounder. And we have this resonating, important, under-acknowledged marine cloud brightening work, not experimentation, work occurring in Australia. I'd also say that there's a really important and dominant vision for SRM, and that is that we do nothing because it's hard and difficult to acknowledge that we have the ability to do this and people don't want to talk about maybe we have a moral obligation to do this, regardless of the existing world being broken in many ways. And that's what's occurring. If I had to rank those outcomes, three visions for SRM, private benefit, public goods vision, and doing nothing. In terms of desirability, the most desirable by far to me is a public good vision, by far, dramatically less desirable. An order of magnitude less desirable is a private effort. An order of magnitude less desirable than that is to do nothing. And frankly, if if the consequence of make sunsets is that I take a shot at creating a valuable company, but I slightly move the conversation, if if in future funding presentations, people are able to say, hey, we responsible academics working for the public good actually need funding or crazy people are going to do this on their own, I, I will... I will be proud of myself if I can play the slightest role in moving that the conversation in that direction. But in terms of a ban, as you said, it's very poorly worded and loose, the ban even on ocean iron fertilization, which is far more questionable and was at a much less desperate time than where we are environmentally now. It seems that you recognize the political sensitivity and you recognize that the most desirable outcome you're skeptical about whether it could happen due to simply, you know, the politics and the funding and so forth, and that we've been at a steady state of activities for 10 years. But if that is indeed the case, then aren't there modest changes that you could have made, things you could have done differently, things you could still do differently that would cause your undertaking to be less likely to play out like Planktos and Russ George and the CBD decision, things such as not being a for-profit and incorporating as a nonprofit organization. Why not spend a year getting to know people and the issues? My understanding by listening to your other podcast that you did on Reviewer 2 Does Geoengineering is that you read Termination Shock in February of 2022, and in April, you launched two balloons. Now, I understand that you see climate change as such a serious issue, that is, and it's time-sensitive, and I'm sympathetic with that view, but there's a pro and a con to going fast. Couldn't you have spent a year doing further research and conversations with those who hold diverse views and diverse positions and get a sense of the political landscape? Couldn't you agree to have independent assessment of your results? I see what you're getting at around, you know, moving fast and breaking things, but maybe wouldn't it have been better to move a touch less fast? To be clear, I launched balloons personally in April. I gave myself till end of year to stop working on this as a science project, was lucky enough to to raise funding in October. This became a serious endeavor. So was that February or October? I guess I gave it eight months rather than a year. In that time, I reached out to anyone who would talk to me. I believe one or both of you as well. We did not speak prior to this. Professor Keith was kind enough to speak to me in first time in April or May. Yeah, I, I'm sure there are many things that I could do differently. And I am very excited to get advice about how to move forward more successfully. Starting a nonprofit is not what I have experience in. Others have done that in this space and they do very important work. And maybe that is a more optimal way to do it. I don't know. I'm playing in the wheelhouse that I understand something about and trying, you know, to make a difference in in the way that I have a slight bit more experience than others. I can tell you with 100% certainty, I'm not the guy to to start a nonprofit here. I hope others do, and I'll, to the degree that they can learn from my mistakes, I hope they, they do as well. 
a moment ago, you said that you were going to speak bluntly. I think I'm going to speak bluntly here, if I may. Less than a year ago, you learned about SRM and you spent maybe, I don't know, 50 bucks on Amazon and bought a couple of balloons and bought some elemental sulfur that you burned into what you concluded was SO2, got it into the balloons and let them go. Didn't measure where they went, didn't measure how high they went. Uh, have no idea about the, for example, the particulate size of what was released from that. So you you haven't done anything technologically that Peter I couldn't do. You just did it. You haven't filed patents. Uh, you don't plan on it. Multiple experts have looked at your ratio of grams of sulfur to the cooling effect, countering the warming effect of one ton of carbon and come to the conclusion that it's off by a factor of 10. And my ballpark math also came down around that area. But even at your number of one gram of sulfur at $10, countering one ton of CO2 for a year, as Pete was talking about, that would need to be purchased for years to, to continue that cooling effect. And you can buy mitigation on the European ETS market, the emissions trading scheme, for under $100 per ton. So even at your generous numbers, they're not that favorable. And your defense, when we've criticized you, one defense has been, well, the unreliable, cheap carbon offsets market is worse. Look, people are investing in your firm. And some people are buying your product. That's their business. As they say, a fool and his money are easily parted. But you might have an impact in a politically sensitive area that many of us have been operating in for many years carefully. Why should the SRM community, broadly defined, take you seriously? If the SRM community, broadly defined, thinks that what they are doing is working, then they shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, it's that simple, right? Like, <laughs> if everything was fine, this is disruptive, positively or negatively, depending on your perspective. And if it was working, then Godspeed to you all. I, I would argue that that harms are occurring that we could prevent. So we should try. Do you think you might make the situation worse? Uh, there will was no experimentation materially occurring. And it's been 12 years since Scopex got postponed for instrumentation-only flights. So uh, I'm certainly not going to result in less sulfur dioxide being injected into the stratosphere this year than last. And I think it is... <laughs> it's hubris to think that I might slightly move the needle on global warming, and it would be extreme hubris to think that I might ruin everything for everyone with my small attempt to make a difference. I, I don't, the history of innovation has not played out that way in my understanding of it. And, you know, if people feel differently, I, I hope they reach out and I'm open to, open to being convinced of different approaches. As we get data over time, if I decide based on information over time, and I'm open to being convinced of this, that this is doing more harm than good. I can shut this down earlier rather than later. We like that on a positive note. So if things go well and things develop as you hope they do, in a year's time from now, how have things developed? Man, a dream scenario is that instead of the next cop being a bunch of people blabbing and no action being taken, at the next cop, we could do a mass release of sulfur dioxide responsibly, and we could offset the carbon emissions, we, as in many, many, many collaborators, we could offset the warming created by new carbon emissions for that year. And it would cost well over $20 million. $30 million is probably still conservative. But that that is an uplifting scenario to me. It's scary to think about doing that much. But, you know, desperate times call for call for extreme measures, in my opinion. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us, Luke. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for listening. Please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere. And please consider supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash challengingclimate.